0: You're listening to The Last Thing I Saw. In this week's episode, Genevieve Yu tells us about a film series she programmed at Metrograph called Implicit Movies. It's a fascinating selection of films exploring a world of backgrounds, bit parts, and fragmented memories that lurk behind every image, as in a strange chance encounter in Mulholland Drive. Genevieve is an assistant professor of culture and media at the New School, and so we also talk about how she taught uncut gems in one of her classes. And as part of my Bring a Friend initiative on the podcast, Genevieve invited Nico Baumbach, an associate professor of film and media at Columbia University. Together we talk about the children's classic The Red Balloon, Agnes Varda's The Gleaners and I, and the new Adam Curtis series Can't Get You Out of My Head. Please note that to indulge my whim for spontaneity and mystery, Nico patches into our recording session partway through, so look out for that. Let's go now to the conversation. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw, where I and everyone listened to what wonderful things people have been watching, but as well as watching, writing about, programming, teaching, and today is, an especially good day for that because I have a guest who is doing all all of the above just by way of introduction uh, my guest today is I guess I I know you know originally just as as a fellow writer uh, way back when from reverse shot so that's sort of my original point of contact I think and also film comment I was very fortunate to be able to uh, work with her and edit pieces she has written Uh, so uh, without further ado please welcome Genevieve Yu.
1: Hi. Good to be here. Excited to be on uh, on your podcast. Thanks for having me.
0: And I I wonder if you could say a bit about what you're busy with these days, generally. Uh, I mean, I I guess one primary thing you do is that you teach.
1: Yeah, so I'm teaching. We can talk about that. I'm teaching a class entirely on Nanook of the North, which is uh, not just about that film, but a kind of documentary tradition or traditions spawned by that film. And I'm also working a lot. on the, I, I'm a board member of the Flaherty Seminar, so I'm just kind of like a lot in this Flaherty space, but um, working on a really cool project where Flaherty's, there's a number of materials associated with his shooting of Nanook at the Norths uh, in 1922, well, well, prior to that. Um, but there's a number of photographs that he took that we recently came into possession of so we're working on identifying, archiving, and hopefully repatriating those materials to Inuit communities and cultural institutions. So that's, that's a really fun project. And so I'm just very much in this headspace of kind of Nanuk and its uh, vexed legacy. Other things too, but that's, that's where my head is.
0: Yeah, the full history of that, it just, it seems like it's one can always peel another layer and there's more to it. More to it than meets the eye, I guess, pretty literally. I guess what we can start with talking about is a program that you've done. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that, what the kind of idea is behind it.
1: So I programmed a two-part series at Metrograph. Um, It's virtual, which is kind of weird. But one of the upshots is actually that we will be doing some kind of in-person screening once the theater reopens. So I'm so grateful to Metrograph for offering that. And the idea behind this series was loosely based on a book that I published last year, which is called Girlhead, Feminism and Film Materiality. And when I approached Metrograph, initially, I thought, they have a bookstore, maybe I'll do like a book kind of event, but they proposed instead a a programming opportunity, which is super exciting. And I was working mostly with Jake Perlin, and we were kind of riffing back and forth on this idea of um, uh, something that's in one of the epigraphs to the introduction. So this was a comment by Bruce Conner talking about a movie in which he talks about things that are, and this is his words, uh, hidden but there. So these kinds of not quite secret, but not quite visible or in-your-face elements that are very much there if you're looking for them in films, but not typically noticed. And this led to thinking about all kinds of things that we don't really see in films or things that we take for granted. And, you know, in some ways you could program certainly more than two screenings worth of films. But I tried to fit films that were seemed to be speaking to each other and one foot in the book and one foot out of the book. So some of the films are works that I talk about directly in the book, and most of them are not. So this is really a great opportunity to think more associatively. It's kind of like a companion. You could think of it as a companion to the book, but certainly... Uh, one could watch the series without ever touching my book. Yeah. So it's a, li- it's a little bit of a collection of things that I've like favorite films of mine that I've mm-hmm. seen uh, mostly recently. I noticed the kind of, you know, app puts a date span for the films and roughly it corresponds to my age, which is weird. So each program is kind of like goes back to, I mean, I'm like a little older than this, but like early eighties to the present. So it's, I don't know what to make of that that's just
0: accidental it's sort of a uh, motion picture timeline i mean i I just want to flag that it's such a broad span of films you know one in particular is a filmmaker i'm always been interested in in what he produces because he's telling stories about film history as well that and has the ability to kind of reflect the world back to us in, in doing that um speaking of kind of like simultaneous timelines and that's the uh, Tony Longo trilogy, directed by Tom Anderson, who I guess you know most people know from Los Angeles Plays Itself, this kind of epic pastiche history uh, of Los Angeles, according to images in the movies, both uh, representative and and not representative, and sort of examining the you know slippage and gaps between that to try to come to some understanding of the place. and But Tony Longo trilogy is not one that I, I've been able to see yet. Um, what is he talking about in this one?
1: So I'm kind of obsessed with Los Angeles plays itself. I've seen it, I don't even know how many times. I assign it in my introduction to film classes. And I feel like there's a kind of initiation into how to watch movies in this way. And so I didn't quite realize it as I was programming, but there was a, a way in which Los Angeles th- Plays Itself was threading through my thinking. And uh, I actually wrote a little essay partially about the Tony Longo trilogy and partially about Los Angeles Plays Itself, mostly about Los Angeles Plays Itself uh, for Metric app that's up on their website. But the Tony Longo trilogy is, I think, born of a, it's like an outtake of Los Angeles Plays Itself. Um, in that, at least the first part of it, the first uh, installment, it's called "Hey Asshole," is is from footage that you also see in Los Angeles plays itself of this character actor named Tony Longo, who unf- unfortunately uh, passed away. But this, you know, giant of a of a person, three hundred pound man, usually plays a bodyguard or a muscle of some in some ways, and so. In the Tony Longo trilogy, Anderson is, you know, kind of looking closely at three performances that Longo did in the 90s uh, in three films. So Hey, Asshole is from a straight-to-cable film called The Takeover. The second one's called Adam Kesher, uh, question mark. That's from Mulholland Drive. Uh, And the third is You Fucking Dickhead. That's from the film Living in Peril. And what I love about this trilogy uh, it's su- it's super funny, first of all, and it seems so simple. You're just cutting; he's just cutting the scenes in which Tony Longo appears, and essentially, you know, putting them in order, uh, and that's what's happening. And adding some little titles in between moments so that, as a viewer, you can kind of understand what's happening to his character. When Anderson recenters him in the frame, and kind of makes him the hero, uh, this minor character who. You would otherwise really not notice uh, in most cases he becomes a kind of like tragic witness to all this uh violence and chaos happening around him um so i guess it's tragic comic but um i found it really actually surprisingly moving the kind of um suffering that he endures the brutality inflicted on again his massive body and the like his attempt and you can see in this actor's face uh to uphold some kind of dignity through this process of these like at least in the case of uh the takeover and living in peril like truly goofy debased movies and i i just think that's so um surprising and again a kind of through reframing a way of re-watching something that you're familiar with or, or maybe sort of familiar with in a new way. And, and just sort of you know accessing, let's say mainstream Hollywood films, but really could be any kind of film by just shifting the emphasis a bit. So yeah, I felt it important to put Tom Anderson's work in this program uh, and also celebrate this particular trilogy.
0: I'm forgetting, what, what what scene is he in in Mulholland Drive?
1: Yeah, the scene from Mulholland Drive is excellent. It's the scene where, uh, I don't know that his character has a name. He comes to um, Adam Kesher's mansion, Justin Thoreau's mansion, but Justin Thoreau's not there. But his wife comes out. So he, he comes in and uh, he can't find the doorbell, and that's kind of funny because it's also like a glass door and he comes in, and he says, Adam Kesher, and then this woman, this, like, petite blonde woman that's covered in paint inexplicably, just, jumps on top of him, and she's like, get the fuck out, and he just keeps saying, Adam Kesher, and then this man with a mullet and a, a white tank top comes in, like, also tiny compared to Tony Longo, um, starts, like, punching him, but he just kind of they're like insects on him. He like throws them off himself and just keeps walking. And that's the whole, That's I just described the entirety of Adam Kesher, but that's the scene just like, and you just feel for the guy. Cause it's like, he, I don't know what his job is, but how, impl- you know, what a bad day at work to just, <laughs> you're just trying to right. show up, you know, find someone. Um, and these like annoying people having their little stupid affair are, art or just you know jumping on your back and and being annoying yeah it's great (laughs)
0: lynch
1: is a genius
0: (laughs) it's funny how that became like a whole um ironic feature or or, of movies um the the marginal figure who's i mean just becomes a kind of a, a joke so we're usually just in a way kind of prompted not to pay attention to them um, so I, I like the idea of trying to tune into uh, their experience, and, and, and as you're describing it, it's true. It's just kind of what a what a terrible day.
1: <laughs> and I, I think it it I don't know it tells us a bit about Lynch too. Like um, it's absurdist, but it's chaotic and it's violent. At, at like you open any door, and what feels real like falls into this abyss, like really quickly. And this is a moment, you know, we're far removed from what's happening to Naomi Watts at this point in the film. And it just erupts uh, into uncontrolled, yeah, chaos. And I think that's, that's like a, I think a good insight that Anderson is like offering us into the way that Lynch's worlds work.
0: Yeah, the, the, the kind of rupture um, you know if, if it's something like in in blue velvet you know that kind of collision of, of worlds you know of why do there have to be people like Frank but those are I mean what I those are all kind of of a different type of extreme this is very much embodied in the, just the, yeah the experience of Tony the Tony longo and that's I liked I was just uh you know quickly looking at uh, what you had uh, written and for Metrograph and I that I like that you have the title, The Eyes of Tommy Longo, as as the title, <laughs> it's through his eyes.
1: Thank you. I think you're the only person that likes the title, but yeah, <laughs> appreciate it. Oh, really?
0: It. Well, yeah. I, maybe it's my own timeline as well, because I remember the, I mean, there are a lot of eyes things, but some reason, also made me think of The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which is, was a... Um...
2: Um, hello? Oh, hey, Nico. <laughs> Hi. I logged on, so here I am. Well, hello. <laughs> How are you guys?
1: Pretty good. We're chatting about my Metrograph thing. Excellent. And Tom Anderson. We're excited to have you.
0: I, I really like this because I haven't done this before where we kind of pop in uh, you know, ha- ha- partway through. It's it, it's kind of like patching into, uh, I don't know, it feels like some like older technology, like patching into a phone line or something, like a party line. I don't even know what that was.
2: Yeah. I do feel like it's part of a party line. Um, yeah, I've, I've, this is my first podcast too, so if I'm very bad at it, it's, uh I'm un, unschooled, unpracticed.
0: <laughs> wow, I'm honored to 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 have be the, uh, the the first the first podcast. I, I'm sh- <laughs> it's somewhat of a desultory uh, style uh, that I have, so <laughs> I'm sure there are more directed <laughs> ones. Well, Genevieve, you, you were just. Talking about yeah the Tony Longo trilogy, of Tom Anderson, and was was there one other movie in the program that you wanted to talk about a bit or
1: yeah since it's a new film uh, from 2020 I thought I could um, talk about the film Hidden which is um, by Jafar Panahi I just think it's so remarkable it's, it's filmed like a you know off the cuff uh, documentary shot on you know a couple of iPhones. It's kind of a road trip uh, where he and his daughter pick up a friend who is a producer and she's telling them excitedly about this Kurdish woman, young woman who has an amazing singing voice and, uh, but her, her father won't let her appear on camera, but they just have to go to the village where she lives. They just have to hear her sing. And so in a way, like, you know, the, it's a lot of suspense uh, set up, where, you know, are we going to hear her? Are we going to see her? Uh, but we can kind of predict what's going to happen. But when when the ending comes, it's still genuinely, I think, uh, surprising. Even if you know the events that are probably going to happen, um, the experience of it is really quite astonishing. And I guess I won't give away very much more than that, but I, I just wanted it to end the program. It's uh, with, I don't know, Something kind of bright and astounding. I, hmm. If you only watch one film in the whole program, I, I would recommend that one.
0: Yeah, no, I I need, I need to catch up with that It reminded me we were talking a bit before that it reminded me of the plot of Three Faces, just the general kind of outline of it of this trip into the country, and you and you said that's kind of mentioned in the short.
1: Yeah, this is the you know one of the like moments where I don't know that. You know, I think Panahi's maybe like winking at us, where you know I think the producer friend or the daughter says, "Hey, this is like your your movie," and he's like, "Yes, yes," and it's this like very Iranian New Wave, more Kiarostami kind of moment where, like, oh, is what we're seeing a documentary? Um, we're playing a fiction, or you know, we're blurring the boundaries between those categorizations and. Um, it's delightful. It's a delightful added layer onto on top of what many could easily assume is just a, you know, straightforward uh direct account of what what was happening. So I like that playfulness, that element added there too.
0: Yeah. Well, that, that might actually be a good uh, way uh, to kind of segue into a movie that came into the menu because uh, Nico is teaching it. And actually I think it connects nicely with a couple of films that we've talked about so far already. The Gleaners and I, which I'm, you know, always really happy to have a chance to talk about. I was just rewatching parts of it um, and I mean, one thing just immediately struck me this time and and Nico, I'm really curious to hear what you kind of saw in it again anew and when you were watching it again, um is just that she shows you her her work, if that makes sense, you know she's I guess that's part of what an essay film often does is that you're kind of showing the work, you're kind of and and I really like that, you know, and that means everything from, oh, this thought made me think of that thought, you know, to the actual process of like physically going across France. He's like, okay, that makes me think of Burgundy. So we're going to go to Burgundy. And I saw these trucks, you know, and I, so I, I don't know, that's one thing that just struck me just kind of looking at it.
2: Yeah, no, I am teaching a class and um, sort of survey undergraduate survey of documentary theory and history. And it's a film I always uh, love teaching, because it's, it's a really rich Resonant metaphor for documentary in general: this idea of gleaning, um, mm-hmm. and and gets to what you were saying about the essay film as a kind of associative process, um, where at some level you could go anywhere from the point you are. Um, so it's it's an effect may sometimes take the form of something like a journey, but there's there's the implication that. You're not trying to get from point A to point B because you might you know dart off in some other direction at any time, and you know one of the uh, one of the students in class the other day called it called it meandering um, and um and I understand that of course, um but yeah, I was trying to sort of like pose that as 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 an issue about the you know about essay films in general and and maybe in particular. Varda and her relationship to Marker as well, you know, that, that these are all films in search of a form in some way. And in that sense, they're meandering, but it's also about a kind of playful search for, for form, when you give up on knowing what the film is in advance. Yeah, I mean, one of the things Varda has said about the Gleaners cleaners and I and her career is that, it was a film that made her realize that documentary is a, is a discipline in modesty or teaches modesty and which is sort of the opposite of a lot of, I think, sort of like contemporary Netflix documentaries. But, um, uh, I think, (laughs) I think you feel that in her film and the idea then of gleaning as a model for salvaging the things that, might not seem important and and figuring out why they're important in some way is crucial to the film. Do you ever teach that film, Genevieve?
1: Yeah, I almost always um, put it at the very end of my intro course, Uh, but it it usually finds its way in there. Uh, I I think it's, I agree with you. I think it's, um, there's a kind of humility to her approach that, I think it's quite liberating especially for students who are interested in making films themselves to release themselves from a preconceived notion of what documentary is, but also, you know, just the idea you can go and film trash like a pile of garbage and that's okay to make it into a film that's meaningful. And you can go through things that other people have forgotten about or, or thrown away. Um, and mind that for, for meaning and put yourself in the film. And I think it, it, it gives a lot of, um, you know, kind of creative license or freedom to explore and to find the form in the process, as you're saying.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And trash is sort of the, the model for the film in some way. I mean, and we, we got, you know, these sort of talisman in the film of the, the clock with no hands and the heart shaped potatoes that are these sort of pieces of trash she finds. But then it, you know, becomes associated with psychoanalysis too, or, you know, mm-hmm. all these different practices, um, you know, where we see, you know, she interviews Jean Laplanche, who talks about his idea of psychoanalysis as based in, you know, all the things we say we don't mean to say, you know, the, the trash, the refuse, the mistakes, the accidents, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so you get this sort of wonderful associations that sort of, that this film, you know, produces. And, and it's a film, we're in a moment where everybody's making films about themselves or curating images of themselves in one way or another. And, you know, sometimes that gets called narcissistic or whatever. Um, but it's also a film that shows, you know, how you can center yourself, make a deeply personal first person film that does feel about about a a kind of practice and modesty, or, or release of ego in some way.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's like a, a like a first person account of a of a mind, like a of a way of thinking and processing information and discovery and associ- you know those connections. I mean, I I feel like Varda made a much more autobiographical film in like Beaches of Agnes. Yeah. Um, but Gleaners is so much more. Um, I mean, she can't absent herself from that, but uh, I think it's what's exhilarating is it's a process. uh, It's a portrait of a thinking and curious mind.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And I, yeah, it really is true that she weaves in many other things that are kind of marginal and then she's able to bring to the center. I mean, at the very beginning, she's, she's so happy about how she, these new little digital cameras. which I mean, I, I mean in in 2000 is you know it's it's still not it's still a little bit of a dicey proposition for for a lot of uh, a lot of viewers. Um, and she's she's happy that she has this tool uh, that that lets her. I mean there's even a shot of like the manual of the digital camera, which I had completely <laughs> yeah. forgotten about. Uh, putting that on a screen is is kind of remarkable. Um, and it's, I mean, it's just also easy to forget. And I'm almost curious what students make of it. It's so common. I mean, everyone is self-chronicling so much now in a visual way. Yeah. Yeah. It can be h- easy to forget that this is not necessarily something a filmmaker um, would would be doing and that, you know, you would want to regard as as something really, you know, profound as, as it is.
2: Yeah. And that's also a great example of... Or a model, I think, for for digital cinema in the 21st century coming as it does at the very beginning of the 21st century, because it's completely cuts through all the anxieties about the digital. I mean, the digital being some, you know, we're still hand-wringing over all our fears about deep fakes and Photoshop and all of this stuff. But it it's a film about. You know this very tactile digital camera that is an extension of your eye, but also your hand, that you know sort of connected to your body, and in many ways can be a tool to bring you closer to reality and not further from it. And so I think it's it's uh, like Panahi's movies um, shows how the digital is not a uh, reducing everything to spectacle or that kind of line we sometimes hear.
1: Mm-hmm. It's funny that lesson has to continually be relearned in like film and media history. That just, that's so mm. much the line, you know, it reminds me of Maya Darin, um and like Veritov and uh, always this yeah. anxiety around estrangement and alienating effects of photographic technologies um, that I'm, I'm a little bit surprised at like just, continually, you know, just persist. There's a, I don't know. everybody
2: keeps falling for it.
1: Yeah. There's like (laughs) a, like a deep mistrust, I think, um, embedded there, uh, the technology and uh, that's kind of interesting too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That kind of feeling of estrangement or the feeling that the image is something separate from you is something that even from the very beginning, she kind of is pushing against. Uh, I mean, I just, I mean, even just in those the earliest short, you know, of Around Her Neighborhood. Uh, I always forget the exact title. Of the But, you know, she has these close-ups of just uh, of, of herself, you know, in the credits and her body. And I just that's I, I always saw that as just a way of showing that cinema is not supposed to be it doesn't have to be something removed from you know, the Im- immediacy of, of a personal e- experience um, and and bodily experience, even I don't know that Maybe. was that's just was striking to me from from the very beginning. and that's something she keeps up in uh, the gleaners and, and I um, there's just this shot of like when she's combing her hair and it's a, it's a close up of her combing kind of and of and her hands, you know, and she has just this moment where she's talking about uh, aging, basically. Uh, and that's just woven yeah. in there.
2: Yeah. And one hand filming another, Mm -hmm. you know, she talks about the, her hand aging.
0: Yeah. I also, I, (laughs) I realized I didn't really um, define just in case, you know, people, anyone who hasn't seen uh, the gleaners and I, which uh, actually it's, it's right now on criterion. So it's really easy to see, but a gleaner is picking up what's left behind after a harvest. You know, I guess it could be anything from potatoes to, to wheat, And that's in the movie, they make a distinction between picking up versus, I guess, sort of plucking, Uh, you know, if there are apples left behind that are still on a tree or something. Oh, and that's another thing that I also wanted to mention in the movie is that it's not she's always keeping things from getting from being cerebral uh, in a way. I just love the scene of her just luxuriating in these freshly picked. Are they? I don't know if they're apples or pears but she just loves them it's just eating like one after another it's one of my favorite scenes
2: yeah and it has this connection obviously to art history and these 19th century painters paintings of gleaners and um but it, you know that it was also women who were you know that the primary form of gleaning is you know stooping and so there's this sort of sense of it as this kind of labor that doesn't count as labor and and that again, I think is very resonant for a way of thinking about filmmaking.
0: Yeah, and 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 you know what you can take as a subject uh, for for filmmaking. Um, I I had actually forgotten that there was a pretty sort of robust element in the movie of sort of social issue kind of documentary. Um, just definitely wanting to show how people I, I don't know an an average citizen is actually doing, uh, which isn't always uh, which isn't always great. Also, whenever I get the excuse, I I also like to uh, point people towards, um, I'm I'm sure both of you have have seen that, you know, that Eduardo Coutinho, I forget if it's a feature short, Boco Delicio.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's about an hour long, I think.
1: I don't know it. What's it about?
2: I just remember this wonderful, wonderful girl singing in it.
1: Oh, Yeah.
0: Basically, it's it's people who live on the borders of a giant dump, you know, uh, on the outskirts of, I think it's Rio. It, it's one of those movies you watch and then you kind of turn to the world and have very different eyes because of all, all the people who live at the at the dump are able to repurpose everything that's there. So, you know, whether that is maybe discarded food, but also... You know a s- scrap of all sorts uh, that they, they can build houses out of or you know repurpose plastic it just kind of put the lie to the idea that there's a, a an end point for any object because i think one of the strangest fictions of modern life is that when you put something in the trash that's like the end of it um i mean also one of the most kind of like <laughs> destructive kind of fictions but that that i mean because it's you just stop thinking about it but you know, in this case, they, it is matter that appears elsewhere and and can be put to different purposes. Um, and I don't know, I found that uh, kind of a, a very interesting way to to rethink about the world. So I don't know that that comes to mind when mm-hmm. thinking of uh, the gleaners and and I. But that's a great yeah, pairing both. of gleaners, yeah, yeah. I, I like mm-hmm. that one a lot. Well, that so we we, we talking about uh, the gleaners and I, uh, which has a I guess in, in the French title has is also also kind of makes makes a point that we kind of touch upon about a uh, gender. I guess uh, I, I'm not going to say the French title because.
1: La <laughs> 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 um,
0: There you go. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's a title that Nico you were you were teaching, um, and I'm curious, uh, Genevieve. We were looking at a list of the movies that you had been um, watching and teaching and programming. And there was one that kind of jumped out to me because I, I was, I thought it was really neat uh, also that you, you had it in a, uh, a syllabus and that is uncut gems. Yeah. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about how, how you're using that.
1: Well, I was co-teaching. So maybe that gave me a feeling of like that emboldened me a bit. Cause I had my co-instructor Pacho like, Sign off on it. Um, I know it was, you know, it was at the beginning of the fall term, and we we thought, how are we going to keep students engaged online because our teaching has all been remote, and I think it's it's tough to demand that students watch or anyone watch, you know, like really uh, formally challenging work. So we thought this is an intro class and we have these big heading concepts to teach like cinematography and editing sound, et cetera. So for mise-en-scene, we thought um, uncut gems could be fun. And another reason we picked it is that it's such a New York film. And I thought our, you know, I teach at the new school, it's in New York. And a lot of our students are not having a New York experience right now. They're wherever they live and they're, mostly in their family, their parents' homes. Uh, it's not that our students would have a, even if they were in New York, would have a feel for like the Diamond District. But um, I like the idea of just hitting them with like a really, you know, like a blast of, of New York in this film. Um, it's a lot of film. And uh, the students had an assignment that I thought was really fun, which is that we have them storyboard an alternate version of a scene it's a scene where Adam Sandler like throws a smoothie in Julia Fox's face. And then she later texts him during his Seder that she's moving out of her midtown apartment, but he's um, keeping up for her. So the students had fun with the um, storyboarding of that. They got to curse a lot. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, The challenge was to imagine like the interior life of, of Julia. And like, what is she thinking? Does she go, does she go to the gym? Does she, you know, does she stomp around her apartment or, you know, is she having like a feminist awakening? Who knows? You know? So it's like, um, so that was, that was fun. Um, I think a lot of students felt like pretty assaulted by that film, which I think is kind of the right response. I mean, not like, you know, in a traumatizing way, but uh, visually, uh, there's just so much of it there, so it was it was fun to to describe in terms of staging, you know, uh, mise en scène elements, set design, costuming's amazing, um, uh, framing, uh, how crowded the frame is, which is always very crowded, um, and mm-hmm. um, it's actually like a very teachable film. I highly recommend it to uh, anyone who is doing like formal analysis it's it you don't realize at the time because it's very stressful to watch but second viewing third viewing is it's a it's a really well constructed film
0: yeah and i mean something like that basically would just fly apart if if it wasn't uh yeah if there wasn't some thought uh, put into it um and i i I love the idea that this is a blast of, of new york they can follow it up with uh with, with good time It's a whole series breakneck new york
2: <laughs> are these students mostly would-be filmmakers who are taking this class
1: i think so Or i mean there's a lot of first and second year students so they not, haven't necessarily decided but i think most of them come in thinking they want to make films and i secretly am trying to convince a lot of them that they can also uh write about them and think about them too, you know, uh, that they don't have to be the director, but there's all these other ways to appreciate, contribute to be a part of film culture. Yeah. That's my secret agenda.
0: (laughs) Revealed, revealed here on, on this uh, notorious podcast. Um, (laughs) No, I really like that. And I mean, and, and to that point, like, I think the cinematographer on, on that Darius Kanji is, well worth highlighting I, I i think a retrospective of his would cause a lot of surprise you know when when you see everything he's been involved in and the range of 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 tones as as, as well uh, i mean i i i have to admit that yeah i had no idea just from looking at it that this this would have been something he he did he, he really continues to challenge himself and speaking of digital i mean this is I felt like it's it's one of those movies that just has a look that feels so full of its own energy. You know, a little like some people made a big thing of Collateral, uh, which is is a movie I like, and and I think mm-hmm. Ho- Hoberman co- Hoberman called it uh, like a movie from the future, or like what a movie would look like in the future, or something. Um, maybe Uncut Gems is another a movie like a movie from a pretty infernal future i guess but yeah there's just this like kind of lurid gleam to 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 it that just always racing ahead uh that's somehow in in how how it how it looks so that must have been interesting that for people yeah who are who are learning the, the craft in diff- different ways
1: yeah i think my, my students love the safty brothers they're just um uh, you know what their tastes are so I, that was I i didn't think it was shocking to many of them because i had a feeling that they I had a feeling that actually a lot of them had already seen it. I'm um, I mean, that wasn't totally true, but not many were severely disturbed by it.
0: <laughs> yeah. People fill out cards afterwards. With, uh, <laughs> were you slightly disturbed, moderately disturbed, <laughs> severely disturbed? Um, <laughs> I thought that was really great that you're teaching that. Um, and I think one other thread that we wanted to, which which we can, can maybe can be our kind of final uh, chapter or two for for the episode, uh, is another way that uh, you're experiencing movies, watching with a different audience uh, next to you. I, I do actually have a segue here because it, I I had forgotten that the Safdie brothers actually made a movie that's in, in homage uh, to to the movie we're going to talk about, um, and which is which was called uh, The Black Balloon. Uh, no points for guessing, uh, the movie uh, the movie that uh, we're going to talk about <laughs> next is The Red Balloon. And I, I guess like a lot of people, this is a movie I saw first in, in school, or maybe I'm kind of dating myself, but I, I did see this first in school with, with some, some sort of projector uh, set up.
2: Yeah, I have a memory of that too, maybe third grade or something I'm sort of wheeling in a you know, 16 millimeter projector and showing us that, yeah.
0: Yeah, which I somehow is part and parcel with the kind of the fantasy of the movie. I mean, I, I really, I guess it was at some some sort of transition period where really there was not a lot of stuff being projected, but for some reason the red balloon was still going to be projected in the classroom, so it was <laughs> right. it was all kind of part of the fantasy. But uh, but Nico, this is a movie that uh, you've you've seen recently for a particular purpose.
2: Yeah, well, I I, um, I have a daughter who's a little bit. Under two. And, you know, I mean, I, I it's my first child. And I, I, one of the things that, you know, I anticipated or was excited about with fatherhood, I think, was some kind of fantasy about like sitting down with my daughter and watching movies. Uh, but then you realize that there's the whole screen obsession. And you can see it happening, this kind of desire to look at screens that you kind of want to protect them from a little bit. So, you know, we're taking it slow. Um, So her very first movie was The Red Balloon um, just a little bit ago. But a a slightly older kid told us it didn't count because it's not a feature length film. (laughs) Um, uh, But I was I was curious to hear from Genevieve, who has a a somewhat older daughter, (laughs) Um, you know, when she decided to show things to to Taddy, and and also you know what she decided to show, and and how those decisions were made, I don't know if this is of great interest to your podcast listeners, <laughs> Nick, but <laughs> um, it's of interest to me.
0: It is. It just I like. I, I mean, I it, it restores the the danger or thrill to to movie going. <laughs> the idea that it could be something <laughs> that could cause you some sort of harm. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
1: um The first, I mean, the first film I, I like took my daughter to. I mean, this doesn't count. It was Call Me by Your Name. So I mean, she was four months old, and I was, uh, you know, wearing her in a baby carrier. So that doesn't count either. Um, this was the first movie we showed to her. I want to say the first one that really stuck with her was The Wizard of Oz. And I have like a list of. Mo- I keep a running list of movies that I watch. Or I try to. And I have a list of movies I've watched with my daughter, and pretty much all of them are like times 30, so every one of them I've watched so many times. And um, it's interesting how uh, her tastes have changed. Um, uh, We have a projector system in my apartment, and for a while I was just projecting right onto a white wall. And I remember I put up The Kid, because like you, Nico, I also had this fantasy about like having my daughter watch experimental film uh, like art cinema and just yeah. like bypassing um, like digital animation animated like creatures uh, and that's that succeeded somewhat but I remember we projected the kid uh, the chaplain and there was a scene where some guy just like comes around the corner and like grabs Chaplin by the scruff, and my daughter freaked out that she was maybe um, barely two at that time. And she like ran out of the room. And then for a really, like a, almost for several days, she was afraid of that room and that wall, uh, which is our living room. So that was challenging because we, we spent a lot of time in the living room. And it was, it was like very surprising what was upsetting. And also having to convince her that this, this man was not in our wall are going to come out of the law. Um, but she's mature. So she's three and a half now. And um, her view, we watched the red balloon yesterday, which we've seen before. And her viewing this time was um, when the, when the gang of older boys yeah. uh, faced down the little uh, Pascal, her response was, um, I want the balloon. <laughs> and I said, and I was like, wait, you want, Do you you want those other boys? Do you want Pascal to have the balloon? You you want to make sure he has it? Or are you saying you're like these other boys? She's like, I'm like the other boys. I was like, you're a collaborator. She's she's (laughs) identifying
2: with the villains.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) The balloon popping is rather crushing. Oh,
1: my God. Yeah. But then,
2: of course, there's a, you know, grace arrives.
1: Kind of. Yeah. I, I feel like it's a pretty rapid transition out of grief.
2: Uh, Yeah.
0: Is that like liberating or is that scary? The idea of being lifted up into the air like that?
1: (laughs) I mean, as of yesterday, my daughter thought it was pretty, pretty great. She just, I was asking her and she just told me to stop talking. So I think she just wanted to really immerse herself in, in that image. I think it's kind of magical. The image of the balloon deflating—it's so beautiful too. Just like the the detail of the uh, the way it's like catching the light and the way it's crumbling. It's actually just it's like a really abstract moment. And then it's like brutal because uh, one of the boys stomps on it. Then um, it's so violent, and um, I was I was pretty shocked watching it. I just forgot how disturbing that moment is.
2: Yeah. It's such a perfectly round red balloon too.
1: It's enormous. Um,
2: <laughs> it's 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 a really wonderful film too. I mean, it has such an incredible sense of street life, not unlike Uncut Gems. It has an incredible sense of, of street life and non actors and you know, at this Arrondi Small on the outskirts of Paris and you know, feel for this neighborhood and and you know, for a filmmaker, too, who made very few films and, you know, invented the game of risk, which um, seems rather at, at odds with the, the ethos of the red balloon. Um,
1: now now I'm seeing all these connections between uncut gems and the red balloon, which yeah I wouldn't have guessed, which is like, you know, like a boy or a, a man child at the center of things with this like precious object
2: the gem and the balloon yeah i mean i've actually have taught red balloon too because there's this wonderful important bazin essay about it where he makes the point too that like all the best children's literature and and by implication films as well um are made by people who inhabit a somewhat childlike view and then because of that, the films are always verge on inappropriate for children as well. And that the sort mm. of sanitized, condescending attempt to make didactic films for children leads to more appropriate films, less dangerous films, but films that children don't like as much. But he uses Red Balloon precisely to make his argument about, you know, montage is not the most important element of cinema. Mm. Um, and it's all based, you know, people think of montage as, as about juxtaposition, but his whole point about not using montage in Red Balloon is about juxtaposition. The importance of, of reserving montage to cinema, to, to rarer moments, is about the juxtaposition of two elements in the same space-time. Um, and in this case, the boy and the balloon. You know, mm. you cut back and forth between the two of them. That wouldn't be interesting at all. It's all about the simultaneous presence of the boy and the balloon in the same, same shot.
0: Yeah, and that's that's part of what makes it feel so wondrous when the balloon seems to have a mind of its own. You know, it's it's somehow they manage to do that uh, in in a way that doesn't doesn't feel like a trick shot or something. Uh, it just sort of floats along, and and then there's that remarkable. It's not quite like pov balloon but when the balloon is chasing the the the, tra- the trolley uh the tram yeah
2: the,
0: the, the second time they just i forgot how long that shot is and i don't even know how the thing didn't like blow away uh but they just it must have been the camera must have been attached to the back of a, the tr- trolley or something as it just looks like it's frantically chasing it's a sort of shot like if if you know if a lover was chasing a train chasing after a train when it's pulled <laughs> out
2: of a station or something like that. <laughs> It's just full of this urgency. It's also just a, a wonderful film that's in the form, you know, of what Hitchcock called pure cinema, which is to say nonverbal cinema, you know, so it's, which is one of the reasons it's so good for a toddler. If you're a little bit pre-verbal.
1: How does your daughter respond to it?
2: She, I mean, she was absolutely rapt. Um, and what was interesting is she sort of like, you know, she started on my lap and on the couch. Um, but she got c- closer and closer to the screen as the film went on. So at the very end, she was, as the boy is raised into the air by all the balloons, she's sort of touching the screen. But it was, she was like totally mesmerized in that way that was both felt great, but then also had that, you know, that instinctual pull where I was like, well, maybe we shouldn't show her too many films too quickly because... It's too attractive. It's too seductive. She'll want to watch them all the time. Wow.
0: I mean, it seems wrong to say it's hyper real as a, as a movie, but he he does, I mean, he and the cinematographer, whose name escapes me right now, they, they take every opportunity. I mean, it's like this Eastman color and he's constantly shooting in depth down streets. So there is such a, you know, you can reach out and touch. It's like you could walk into half of the shots, uh, you feel like. Yeah. You're on the pavement and and that gives the balloon and the balloon has such a magical quality because it, at the same time, it's I mean, it's 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 a balloon. It's like the definition of round uh, and it's and it's floating, but at the same time, it's almost flat. I, I almost thought that they had painted like extra red on it or something, because it, it just, when you first, first see it in the first 10, 15 minutes, it's almost like the red is like coming off it. I don't know if that was just, maybe that's just on my laptop or something, but it just, it's so, it's so vivid.
1: Yeah. About the detail. My daughter was noticing things that were, you know, in the frame that weren't the main subjects. I mean, she's really, she loves cats. So the very first shot of a cat, it's quite a long shot. uh, This cat sitting at the top of the stairs and um, then the boy goes down and pets the cat she just noticed these it's very bazanian that way and the kind of long take aesthetic and providing room to um to look around and just take in the this like really kind of documentary quality of of street life um 1950s street life in paris
2: yeah and i I mean it it brings out use of it as an example for bazan is interesting too because i think it's It brings out how, for him, the investment in in the real or some kind of documentary condition of cinema, which we all associate with Bazin, was always connected to a kind of blurring of the real and the imaginary, or a sort of paradoxical merging of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's what that film does so well. I think he calls it an imaginary documentary.
0: Mm -hmm. That's really great. I like the idea of this as a as a document as a documentary of, of yeah a magical documentary you know especially like on the cusp of I don't know S- cinema verite and a few few years later and, and and new wave I'm I'm sure I haven't read literature on this but I'm I'm sure there must be test tes- testimonies to how this was somehow an, an influence for kind of more run running guns kind of street shot uh, new wavers.
2: I mean, I know Truffaut loved it, um, but I don't have a lot of other New Wave testimony that I've, <laughs> I've read about it. But, but yeah, certainly, the you know, small, small change is a film mm-hmm. that you can see coming out of Red Balloon in some ways.
1: Did we see that together, Nico?
2: Small change, I think. That was, was sounds plausible. <laughs> like, a,
1: was it at film forum? I feel like I maybe saw it with you. I can't remember.
2: I'm tempted to say like IFC maybe ten years ago, <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe Film Forum.
1: Mhm. Such a good film. It's a
2: great film. Yeah.
0: Just looking at a couple a couple other movies, he seems to have had Albert Albert Maurice, He seems to have liked the uh, aerial perspective because he because he did a short about Versailles that yeah. uses some sort of Techno- have you seen it
2: i haven't No, oh. i haven't i'm not as um i'm not a uh, completist uh with memories <laughs> but um, <laughs> i know he only has about four films but i've only seen the white <laughs> Man* and yeah ballon rouge
0: no the only information i can find about versailles Using a device to avoid vibration, Lamaurice employs a camera in a helicopter to capture the parks, gardens, and Trionelle building at Versailles.
2: There was some film about Iran at the end of his life too, right? Um, oh, really? But yeah, it, it also yeah, it's fascinating that he was also the inventor of, of Risk, the game of world domination.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Also, also arguably an aerial view, bird's eye view.
2: Yes, very much so. Yeah, it does seem like maps is are of interest to him.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I was going to ask about just like other viewing that each of you had had done, but I, I fear that might be opening a <laughs> Pandora's box. Uh, but I, I don't know. Nico, you said you had watched the Adam Curtis series. What's 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 your hot take on on that? On that? <laughs>
2: I mean, I've sort—I've had the thought of like trying to write something about Adam Curtis, um, partly because I haven't read anything that I feel like is both a sort of really smart critique and gets at what's good about them. I feel like everybody's sort of caught on now, and everybody's sort of the smart kids are now making fun of Adam Curtis, um, you know, and there are all right. these familiar tropes that, you know, we're all, we, we're used to now, you know, but that was a fantasy, you know, the, the sort of like, but the people in power, you know, and he's been telling the same story over and over and over again. Um, but I think there's something really interesting about these films too. And and he's rare in somebody, you know, contemporary filmmakers who are making films about ideas in this way over a long period of time. Um, and I think, he finds really extraordinary footage in all his films. Um, And so I find something really compelling about them. I mean, this is sort of like as close as I get to binge watching TV (laughs) as when there's a new Adam Curtis, I'll watch it in a couple of days. Um, Yeah. I don't know. Have you, have you guys seen it?
1: I have not.
2: I I haven't either.
0: I mean, I listened to a podcast with him about it. So, Mm -hmm. which now kind of probably ensures that i won't see it because i just don't think because because he's so like on on message about his own train of thought and and train of logic so i feel like i've I've heard heard it i think the last thing i might not have seen anything since bitter lake which i thought had a wrong-headed economic analysis of the 1970s and 80s so that obviously just put me right off
2: Yeah. Well, the, the, the films are all bad history in a certain way. Um, and whenever he's covering something, you actually know anything about, right. Or I know anything about, um, he's generally wrong and reductive. And then you, then there are all these things you don't know about and you're like, wow, I didn't know that. (laughs) Um, but if you, if you knew something about it, it might not have happened that way. But, um, (laughs) nonetheless, I, I find myself sort of relatively convinced by the grand story, which is, which he's been telling in about eight movies in a row, um, which is to say, and it's, it's a story about media at some level too, that maybe he's not quite as self-reflexive about as he might, but, but, you know, that politics has become primarily about how to manage systems that we perceive as completely outside our control at some level and how to best manage them and that there's been a kind of fundamental loss of political imagination. Hmm. And, you know, I think it's some, some way he's trying to seek possibilities for political imagination. And I guess that part of it is very attractive to me, even, even if I think there are great limitations to his work.
0: Yeah. That's, that was uh, something about he was talking about on, okay, I'll admit it. It was on Red Scare that I was listening to him. Um, (laughs) <laughs> it was, it was about. He was just talking about how there's no story. You know, there needs to be a story uh, in opposition to to you know whatever stories are out there, or that that kind of sees people's imagination in the same way that the kind of bad and you know destructive stories uh, sees people's imagine, imagination politically and, and otherwise. But yeah, I, I guess I'll 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 dip a toe into it. See what happens if I watch a chapter.
2: I mean. It's up to you. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, if you're not a fan of his, you won't be a fan of this one. All right. <laughs> um, yeah. And in many ways, it's sort of the most unfocused of his films, too. So the, the sort of narrative is, is pretty out of control. But there's there's some really interesting bits in it. And the bits are primarily stuff he's dug up. I mean, he's he's... When people comment on all his sort of typical tropes and sort of use of certain kinds of stock footage and you know using burial and that's not the most interesting part I think of what he does. Um, what I think he's best at is he has an incredible he has an incredible eye for really interesting historical footage, and he does find a lot of really beautiful sequences that are then sometimes kind of shoved into a sort of reductive narrative he's invested in.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, he's uh I guess still a, a force force to be reckoned with, one of our chroniclers.
2: Well it's 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 also the lack of interesting I mean we we're talking about Agnes Varda and Gleaners and I. And there's a sense in which the essay film is everywhere today. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't have a lot of, I think really interesting film essayists today, or maybe maybe you guys disagree with me. I'm generally disappointed in because it's it's what I crave often are, are sort of you know films about ideas in some way. There's such an abundance of documentary these days, but the sort of formatting of, of popular documentary is is um, largely gets rid of all the stuff that Agnès Varda is interested in um, and just leaves us with completely unambiguous images of you know that we're supposed to take away bits of information from but yeah this is maybe a longer conversation <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah you're absolutely right i just don't feel like there are um, a great deal of ideas there's usually have to be like two to three ideas in <laughs> in a given documentary uh so they can give a half hour to each of them
2: two to three is more than most documentaries have i, <laughs> I mean adam curtis has like one and a half ideas but that's still more than most documentaries Genevieve, what do you think about the essay film today? I I, I mean, I I feel like it's something you have an interest in.
1: Um, I am interested in it. I think uh, we started, before you came on, we were talking about Tom Anderson. Um, Mm. So I put him foremost there. But I've been looking at the space of experimental documentary form, which includes a sizable strain of essayistic work, but not necessarily like in voiceover or, you know, in the marker way of doing it, or VARDA.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would I would add parenthetically that Tom Anderson is one of the few people who's written interestingly about Adam Curtis. Hmm.
1: I mean, I watch, I'm pretty omnivorous in terms of what I will watch, especially if I'm just doing it to, just like scrolling through Netflix, like most other people. But uh, in the niche world of experimental documentary, I think there's... Um, there are a lot of interesting things happening and I, I think there's a kind of salient form particular concerns, the more essayistic mode, but largely that's happening in Europe. Um, mm. there are people like Deborah Stratman in the U S. Right. Um, uh, but I'm thinking like, you know, like Luke Fowler, you know, in, in his way, I think Kevin Jerome Everson is doing essayistic work without mm. commenting overtly. Um, so it's, I guess I'm interested in like the, the way this mode kind of migrates, but also functions in like non, not necessarily dialogic or like, you know, through spoken dialogue. Uh, but yeah, I agree. A longer conversation.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There are all these ways in which the mode is incorporated or is, you know, otherwise used. It's almost as if maybe, it sounds strange to say it, but you know Adam Curtis is doing something that's almost a classical form of a film essay, um, mm-hmm. in 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 the way he's he's putting it together and telling this kind of totalizing, you know, analytical narrative. I mean, another thing, I I, I wouldn't classify it as an essay because I guess if you know to keep up the analogs to I guess written forms, um, I've, I've seen you know the the letter form um, or letter mode being. Uh, something in mm-hmm. uh, experimental documentary oh that's all that's that's mm-hmm. all over and so that almost seems for many people a more um, popular fruitful uh, avenue in, into into things
2: there was sort of a time that i think has passed where you would go to like the whitney biennial and it would seem like 50 percent of what was there was like an imitation of sans soleil um mm-hmm. and i feel like there are people still doing things in that a lot of people still doing things in that mode like that rat movie that came, what was it called, Rat Film? Um, oh,
1: yeah, Rat Film, yeah.
2: Um, oh,
1: yeah.
2: Uh, or Travis Wilkerson, I guess. Um, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Where I feel like there's some sort of template of marker that's kind of the model for certain kinds of essayistic films people are doing now. Yeah. Often I find those films sort of a little bit derivative feeling.
1: Yeah, it's certainly and, a mode.
2: It's a mode, yeah. <laughs>
0: I like that. I like that as an ending. It's a mode, <laughs> but uh, yeah. I mean, we can. I think we can bring it to a conclusion to the concluding paragraph of this uh, podcast essay. But um, thank you both for for taking the time. And then I'm always glad it kind of does emerge that we were talking, ended up talking a lot about kind of essay form uh, or film essay film and various discursive modes. Um, And I like that Uncut Gems is part of that uh, conversation somehow as well, (laughs) the New York landscape. Um, But yeah, thanks. Thank you both for coming on.
1: Yeah, thank you. This is fun.
0: Be sure to see the Implicit Cinema program at, at Metrograph. And Nico, is there anything I can uh, we can mention that you'd like people to see or or,
2: or read? Absolutely not. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I got nothing. Adamant. (laughs) I I mean, go go see Genevieve's program at the Metrograph. That's what I think everyone should do. Okay. Thank you. All right,
0: great. (laughs) All right, uh, and signing off. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at rappold.substack.com. That's rappold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.